Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for August 17th, 2014. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jack Steen at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, A Bigger Dream, Learning from a Goose. An historian by the name of James Truslow Adams wrote Epic of America in 1931, a book in which he coined the phrase, the American dream. That phrase captures the hope of Americans and has often been used to summarize our national ethos. Of that dream, Adams wrote, there has been also the American dream that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone, with opportunity for each according to his ability or achievement. It is a difficult dream for the European upper classes to interpret adequately, and too many of us ourselves have grown weary and mistrustful of it. It is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely, but a dream of social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are, regardless of the fortuitous circumstances of birth or position. The American dream means more than just owning a house, but home ownership has become an easy caricature and is sometimes used as a convenient measure of American progress toward the larger dream. This dream is a high bar by the world's standards, though for our most fortunate citizens, including you and me, it's a dream we take for granted. For many others, however, the American dream is a standard which talks and judges, and understandably so. Tim Logan, of the Los Angeles Times recently reported that for a host of reasons, not all reflecting the basic health of the economy, home ownership rates are at the lowest level since 1995. And USA Today recently estimated the cost of the American dream, not to buy a house, the cost of the American dream for a family of four at around $130,000 which puts the American dream out of reach for seven out of every eight American households. Seven out of every eight households. The authors of a new book called Chasing the American Dream say the vast majority of Americans, for the vast majority of Americans, there is a sense that achieving the American dream is becoming more difficult. Now there's a lot of finger pointing going on these days as to why this is the case. My guess that even as I have been talking to you, you have summed it up. Who's to blame for the decline and why? As we conclude a summer series of praying with the psalmist, however, as we reflect on this final prayer for unity, I want to invite you not to get caught up in that blame game. But consider with me that perhaps Richard Rohr, a member of the Roman Catholic order and a prolific writer and acknowledged expert in issues of spiritual development, has it right. 
Maybe our concern should not be why the American dream may be in jeopardy these days. Maybe we should be concerned about the dream itself. Maybe it's the wrong dream. Maybe it's not a big enough dream for a country like ours. Building my house and my career and my portfolio are lofty, admirable goals, and the vision of that dream has lifted millions. People from all around the world are still doing anything they can to get here because they want that opportunity. But maybe that's a too limited dream. Or maybe we have collectively, as a nation, achieved that dream, and it's time for us to dream of even bigger things, to set our sights on an even higher goal. What if we dream not of building our own house, but of building communities, of putting the time and the energy and the enthusiasm and excitement in building a city that we put in building our own home? What about our love for building a nation? What if, rather than the individualism of my dream, we could motivate people to envision our dream? Our dream. What if the people, what if people gave their lives creating a future for the children of their city, not just those under their own roof? What if corporate boards were invested in providing financial security for the hourly wage earner who worked the third shift, not just the CEO at the top? Now, I suppose all that just sounds preachy, doesn't it? Like some ivory tower ideal or the beginning of some socialist manifesto. But biblical wisdom is neither an idea far removed from the average person nor a vision of utopian equality where everybody has exactly the same amount of stuff. But biblical wisdom is a dream because most people simply cannot see it. Most people just cannot envision true community. People gathered with unity. So it has been the task of sages and prophets and poets in every age to sing this vision into our hearts. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Kindred begins with family. The psalmist clearly understood kindred within the framework of ancient Israel, the people now known as the Jews. But there is no reason to believe the God who created, who created all families from one blood would have us begin drawing dividing lines beyond our church or our faith, dividing lines between us and those who look like us and talk like us, think like us. Created in the image of God, we are a worldwide human family, kindred. And until we can broaden our dream to expand beyond what is mine, we will all be less than we could be, and surely far less than God intends us to be. As Dan has already mentioned this morning, we need to look no farther than the disturbing events that are still unfolding in Ferguson, Missouri, 
to understand how little we have truly done in this nation in the name of unity. A half century after Martin Luther King Jr. pronounced a dream of racial, racial equality and put our nation on a better path, we are still unable to unite across the very simplest difference, the color of our skin. And how sad is that? I'm wearing an orange tie and you're wearing a blue tie and we can't get along. How silly, folks. It's just a color. Racial unrest is still shaking our nation. I don't know the details of the shooting in Missouri. The sad truth is I'm not sure how much it really matters. Revealing a harsh reality of the culture of police work in this country, once again an unarmed black man is gunned down by a uniformed police officer. According to an article this week in Mother Jones magazine, this is the fourth such incident in the United States this month. This month. The NAACP reported that between 2004 and 2008, there were 45 officer-involved shootings in Oakland, California. 37 of those, were, thir 37 of those who were shot were black. One-third resulted in fatalities, and though in 40% of the cases no weapons were found, no officers were charged in any of those incidents. White Americans ought to be able to understand the black rage pouring out of Ferguson, Missouri. I was riding home on Thursday from Raleigh, had been to a funeral I was riding with my friend, Dr. Ricky Woods, who's the pastor of Charlotte's First Baptist Church West. As we discussed this incident, I wondered out loud with Ricky how the white community and the black community differed in our understanding of police work and police officers. Ricky, learned, Ricky smiled. I've learned to recognize what that smile on his face meant. I went on to say, as a child, I was taught, as I've taught my own children, that the police are our friends. Anytime we're in trouble or we need help, all we need to do is find a police officer. They will help us. Ricky just smiled. And he said, that's clearly not what black children are taught about the Folks, I understand that there are complicated issues, factors to be understood from all around. But the fact remains that if there is so little trust of uniformed police officers by the black community in general, we have a terrible, terrible problem. Ask a black friend this week to tell you about when she or he had the talk with their children. They're not talking about the birds and the bees. They're talking about teaching their children when they become a certain age to know that they are black and to know what that means for them in a white society that is largely racist in subtle and not so subtle ways. The dream has got to be bigger than my home, my career, my portfolio. 
I know it's a dream. I know unity is a dream. And one of those dreams that just stops us in our tracks. The problems are so immense we don't know where to begin. But as I have told you before, we should begin at least by believing. Believing unity can be achieved and believing unity ought to be achieved. What a blessing that would be. Like a great anointing of oil, the psalmist says. Now this means nothing to you and me. And the thought of oil running down my head and over my face and my beard and over my clothes is actually a little disgusting to me. But this was an honored tradition in ancient Israel. You know of this tradition from the familiar words of the 23rd Psalm, Thou anointest my head with oil. It was a mark of blessing of highest commendation, ordination, approval. It was the highest honor, and it should be ours as well. It will be the mark that our praying has succeeded. Unity. What better evidence could there be of the power of prayer, of our discipline of praying, than relationships healed of their divisions? Unity with your spouse. Unity with your sibling or with your boss. Unity with your neighbor. Unity between the black community and the white community. Between Democrats and Republicans. Between the Russians and the Ukrainians. Between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Unity. Impossible. The psalmist understands this. The psalmist understands that unity is an impossibility. For he says, unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Folks, that doesn't even make sense. Mount Hermon is the 9,000-foot snow-capped mountain peak that straddles the border between Syria and Lebanon, more than 100 miles northeast of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Due from Mount Hermon in Jerusalem? Impossible. Unity today is just as impossible as it was when the psalmist wrote, But we need to hear his truth. We need to hear his dream. On the face of it, it makes no sense to connect Mount Hermon with Mount Zion. But the reality is the dew, the rains, the snow melt of Mount Hermon feed the headwaters of the Jordan River, which is the lifeblood of all of Israel. There is only one family. We are all kindred. No matter how far apart we seem to be, we are integrally connected. We need each other. We need unity, which is understanding and empathy and desire for each other's well-being. True well-being for the other. 
Because we will always be connected no matter how far apart we seem to be. We just cannot afford to go it alone, disdaining the neighbor who is our enemy, the enemy who is actually our neighbor. We've got to learn to fly together. Geese, dumb as they are, fly together. You've seen them in that majestic V pattern, honking and winging it together across the sky. Scientists have learned that staying in formation provides lift for that whole flock. One bird drafts the other just at the right angle behind the bird in front of him. The flapping of the wings in front creates an uplift for the following bird. And by flying in a V formation, the whole flock adds at least 71% greater flying range than if each bird flew on its own. When the lead bird gets tired, he gets a break at the back of the line, letting another goose do the hard work. All the noisy honking from behind is encouragement for the goose at the front to keep up the pace. And if one goose gets sick or is wounded in flight, Two birds always accompany him to the ground where they stay together until the wounded member is ready to fly again. Or if the bird dies, that remaining pair stays together in search of their group or another community in the air. Geese, who have such little brains, have a bigger dream. And they understand instinctively that they need each We need to learn. Twenty-eight years ago, this very moment, twenty-eight years ago, Amy and I were sitting in the sanctuary of the First Baptist Church of Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, There wasn't anything all that unusual about Amy and me sitting in church together. We were from South Carolina. We grew up in the church. We did that most Sunday mornings together. But my college roommates who saw us there were just utterly flabbergasted. Bill Stewart and his family are back from uh, Canada. I don't know whether Bill was there that morning. But I remember Steve Cothran looking at me after church and going, What are you doing here today? This is the first day of your honeymoon. You know, none of my roommates was married at the time. And I guess they thought I had something better I should be doing at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. (laughs) The simple truth is that Amy and I just felt like it was the right way to start a marriage. We have always believed in the church because we believe in the gathered community. The people of God gathered with unity. We need unity. So this is an appropriate place for us to be gathered today, an appropriate place for us to begin our work of reconciliation and unity. And this is an appropriate final prayer for a summer series and for an entire life of faith. How very good and pleasant it is for kindred to live together in unity. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening today. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Grace and peace to you.